0: Our Old Testament reading this morning is from the book of Exodus, chapter 12, verses 21 through 30, as we continue in this story of Exodus of God um, bringing his people out of slavery in Egypt, um, and also bringing judgment on Pharaoh and uh, the Egyptians, and uh and on all the gods of Egypt as well. We are still... still, The people are still in Egypt, but they are right on the edge of coming out. This is starting in chapter 12, verse 21. Before we read, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made, and God, we do thank you for your word which you have given to us. God, we pray that you would help us To not take your word lightly, but to receive it as the uh, gracious gift that it is. God, help us uh, to have ears and hearts that are tuned um, to your voice. God, that we would hear your word and be shaped by your word more than by all the other voices in the world combined. For you alone, know who we really are. You alone know what is really best for us. For you have made us. You have done what it takes to save us. Lord, you have called us to have our life in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus chapter 12, starting in verse 21. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the doorframe. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway, and he will not The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. Turning then to our... Gospel reading, Mark chapter 14, verses 32 through 42. As Jesus has just finished celebrating the Passover with his disciples, showing how that meal, while it celebrates the rescue from uh, slavery in Egypt, it also uh, points to his own way of rescuing his people as the Passover lamb, as he rescues us from sin and death. Going on from there, he gets to a place called Gethsemane. This is where we pick up the story. Mark 14, 32 to 42. It says, they went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us go. Here comes my betrayer. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Before we read our sermon text for this morning, I'll read you a little bit of this. You'll probably recognize it. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. Foolishness. It was the epoch of belief, it was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light, it was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope, it was the winter of despair. We had everything before us, we had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven, we were all going direct the other way. So opens a very famous book, some of you know who its whats it is, what is it? It is a Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. That is correct, um, and the two cities that it's talking about uh, in this book are London and Paris at the time of the French Revolution. If you've not read it, it's, it's one maybe worth reading. But the reason I read this this morning is that opening section. You know, these different extremes. Like it was, it was the best. It was also the worst. And, and these two kind, these two things are happening simultaneously. Uh, is what we're looking at when we look at the Book of Revelation. You know, as you read Revelation, it's like, wait, are things getting better or are things getting worse? And it's like, yes, actually. <laughs> and, uh, and so you see the way in which people are following Jesus. And you also see the way in which people are following the beast. And you also see uh, from the part, point in the book where we are now, uh, chapter 17, really through the end, we're looking at a tale of two cities. We are looking at uh, a city that is kind of described in all sorts of uh, (laughs) images and symbols and visionary language. You'll hear some of that today. It's quite a bit of it, and some of it's a bit shocking. So we're going to have the cities described this way, but contrasted. So you have one that's like the city that is like Babylon and all the things that are like Babylon that basically show this is what all the world has to offer. And there's a lot of stuff the world has to offer. But what the world does not have to offer is life and joy and peace and happiness (laughs) Because that can only be found in God. And God is depicted as the one who is at the heart of the other city, the city of Jerusalem. So he sees Jerusalem like the temple in the middle. And the whole point of that is that it is God who is dwelling in the midst of his people. And so as we go on, we're going to see these two cities, like the kingdoms of the world and all the world has to offer and what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God and have a life with him and in him that goes on forever. And we see these kind of held up, next to each other. And here's what I mean by held up next to each other. Our passage this morning begins like this. In chapter 17, verse 1, it says, One of the seven angels, and just listen very carefully to these words. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. Okay, got that? If you flip over to Revelation chapter 21, verse 9. Listen to this. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Did you hear that? Pretty similar, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, these two are supposed to kind of go together and inform each other. And so one of the things that, uh, the ways in which these cities are depicted these different ways of living in the world, is one is depicted as a prostitute and the other as the bride. Now, um, I'm not going to go into the differences between those two in specifics. So if you need a dictionary, help yourself. But we are going to go ahead and read this morning about uh, the one that is depicted as the great prostitute. Um, And hopefully as you hear these images, knowing what this is about, that this is about the, um, this great city. Uh, hopefully this will make some sense even as we just initially go through. So this is Revelation chapter 17, uh, verses 1 through 18, which is the whole chapter. Um, One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand, filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her forehead was a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. Then the angel said to me, why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast she rides, which has the seven heads and ten horns. The beast which you saw once was, now is not, and yet will come up out of the abyss and go to its destruction. The inhabitants of the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world will be astonished when they see the beast, because it once was, now is not, and yet will come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. They are also seven kings, five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come, but when he does come, he must remain for only a little while. The beast who once was and now is not is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. The 10 horns you saw are 10 kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. They have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. They will wage war against the lamb, but the lamb will triumph over them because he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings and with him will be called and with him will be his called chosen and faithful followers. Then the angel said to me, the waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. The beast and the 10 horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to hand over to the beast their royal authority until God's words are fulfilled. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. That's it for this week. Isn't that fun? No, it's not fun. This is actually a, uh, like we're zooming into what we've already read last week in the seven bowls of God's wrath. And, um, and we're looking at kind of what's happening during that sixth and seventh bowl time period. And we know this because if you're reading through and you're thinking everything just happens in order like uh, like you might expect in timeline fashion, um, then it seems very strange that you would be going along and then you have uh, one of the bowls and it's like, oh, it's it's done. It's finished. It's over. And you see all the evil is totally destroyed. And then you turn the page to the next chapter and it's like, and now here's more evil that needs to be destroyed. It's like, wait, what is that? That can't be right. If you look at it, it's like, now let's go back and zoom in on that last part again, because it kind of happened real fast. <laughs> That's what we're seeing here is uh, kind of zooming in on this. And this is why we have it being one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls. That's that tie in for us. And as it, um, as it brings all this forward for us, uh, and I can assure you we do not have time to unpack all that needs to be unpacked <laughs> in this particular uh, chapter but we will see more of the same in the coming chapters we will continue to think about this together but one of the things that we see is this uh, being dressed in, uh, in purple and scarlet glittering with gold precious stones and pearls has a golden cup in her hand and you're like wow that's a lot of fancy stuff this is a pretty fancy lady we're talking about right but what's in the golden cup so she held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries and then later it says that she uh, that the woman was drunk with the blood of god's holy people the blood of those who bore testimony to jesus This reminds me of the same kind of thing that Jesus was saying uh, to the Pharisees when he talks about them being uh, like whitewashed tombs, who are you know they look good on the outside, but in but full, in, inside they're full of rotting bones. And so, and the same thing, you, know, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside it's it's still filthy. It's not good. And this is what we see with this uh, this prostitute who is riding on the beast, who's getting kind of her life and livelihood and way of life from the beast, from that authority, not from God. And uh, yet, and so it's following his way, and it looks good. Very fancy. And yet, when you get a closer look, you go, this is not good at all. This is really bad. Um, and you see, I think part of it, this, I saw the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people. And when you think about what it is, uh, like we use this expression, not just drunk with alcohol, but, you know, drunk with power. <laughs> and what we typically mean with that is, you know, when someone is drunk, typically, uh, you lowered inhibitions, you make bad choices, that kind of thing. And yet, typically, the person who's drunk, doesn't realize they're making bad choices. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And so when someone is drunk with power, same kind of thing, um, that they start making really bad choices, but they don't realize they're making bad choices. And here we see this, um, this woman drunk with the blood of God's holy people. Who's, she's uh, killing the people who are following Jesus. We see this happen to um, just about all of uh, Jesus' disciples, as they get killed because of the testimony they bear to Jesus, and those in power don't even realize that uh, that they should quit doing that because they get drunk on it, and that we can we can do what we want to those who don't have power, right? Well, as we go on we see uh, two other things uh, that really need to be pointed out. Uh, one is uh, towards the end, when it talks about how the beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute, they will bring her to a ruin and leave her naked, they eat her flesh, burn her with fire. Lots of gruesome graphic imagery there. <laughs> Point is, she's going down. And, and even the beast is going to be fighting against her. You're like, what? That doesn't make sense. I thought they were like on the same team. when it comes to those in opposition to God there is no team everyone's in it for themselves and that's part of the problem and so we see even uh, even the beast turning against the prostitute now the other thing we need to point out is um, we'll talk more about the Babylon thing, but we need to talk about the the waging war against the lamb. This is verse uh, 13, 14, talking about these, um, the kings that have one purpose and they will give their power and authority to the beast and they will wage war against the lamb. I don't know what mental picture you have for like this final battle between good and evil. Um, we talked about last week this, you know, the people of the earth are like, if we all get together and we fight against God, then maybe we've got a chance. It's like, not even close, right? Well, look at this. As you go through the book of Revelation, I think there are several things that are surprising to people because of what we assume about the book. One is, I think we assume that one of the things that's happening in the book of Revelation is it's uh, leading us up to this great battle where it's going to be a, a real nail-biter as all the forces of evil come against the forces of God, and so all the like uh, demonic people and the saintly people are fighting together, and who's going to win? And uh, we'll just have to see when we get to the end of the book you know, kind of thing. But if you actually read the book, that's not how it goes. You do see that that's kind of what the evil side is expecting, and instead, it's just over like that. And... Who wins is the lamb. One of the things I think we also expect is that, uh, well, Jesus died like a lamb, but then he's going to come like a lion and defeat the powers of evil, right? Well, in Revelation, if you were to just guess how many times Jesus is referred to as a lion and how many times he's referred to as a lamb, there's lots of image language in Revelation. So what do you think? 50-50? Some of each? Made a graph, a chart. There you go. In chapter 5, Jesus is referred to as the lion of Judah one time. And then in, the, <laughs> in that same chapter, he's referred to as a lamb five times, the next chapter five times, the next chapter uh, four times, and on and on, even until we get to the very end of the book, and another five times in chapter 21 and two more times. In chapter 22. Isn't that strange? Not what we expected, was it? (laughs) You expect that this is when the lion comes in and uh, defeats evil, but it's actually, this is the mystery. This is the the counterintuitive part. It's the lamb who wins the victory. What lamb? (laughs) And you go back, and we were just reading about Passover, right? About the initial celebration of Passover when there was a lamb who dies, and that is what rescues the people that is what uh brings judgment on evil what the, what do the people do i mean we're looking at the exodus story and you look at how the people get out of egypt you know what they have to do just trust god i mean we're getting ready not only to get um out of egypt but trying to get away from egypt and there's the red sea and that's in the way and what do they do how do they cross the sea They don't start building boats. But God opens the sea and they just walk across. They are looking at a situation that they think is going to be hopeless. We are definitely going to be defeated by all these Egyptians. And instead, God makes a way where there is no way. And they walk through and they never see the Egyptians again. This is the kind of thing that we see with with this book of Revelation, that it is... Uh, They wage war against the lamb, and it turns out it's no contest. They think if we just get everything together, we can maybe... No. It is no contest. It's like maybe if we get all of the water guns in the world together, we can put out the sun. (laughs) It's no contest. (laughs) And it is the lamb who triumphs over them. Why? Because he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And then it says, this is beautiful, and with him, who's with him? With him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. It's those who are victorious, those who have overcome, those who have resisted the temptation to go along and be a part of this city of Babylon, to take our identity as those who are um, citizens of the kingdoms of this world who are seeking their life apart from God, who are putting self first in every way, putting God somewhere down the list. Those of us who say, no, we don't do that. We have been called to something else. We have been called to something much better. We have been called to be a part of the holy city, to be a holy people. We have been called, chosen, to be adopted in to the family of God, to be with him wherever he goes, to follow him faithfully in everything. Jesus talks about those who look at all the world has to offer and says, I want that. In fact, I will trade my soul. I will give up my soul if I could just get all the things of the world. And he said, if you get all the things of the world, everything the world has to offer and you lose your soul, bad deal. That was not a good, and he doesn't even actually have to say it. He just assumes that everybody knows that. (laughs) He says, what good would it be? for someone to gain the whole world and forfeit their soul. Because we all know when you put it like that, well, that's not a good deal. And yet, as he said earlier, uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane to his disciples, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so we do find ourselves looking again and again to this great city of Babylon. We are looking to things besides God to give us our identity, our purpose, our meaning in life. We look to other things besides God to give us happiness and joy. But it's always hollow. It never satisfies there is um, a line I have pulled up on my phone because I forgot that I was going to have to use that for, uh, <laughs> for our live stream. Let me see if I can find it on here. Here we go. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity says, God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself. Because it is not there, there is no such thing. Let's just read that one more time. He says, "God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from Himself, because it is not there. There is no such thing." The great city that looks so good on the outside is. Uh, using the same tactics as the beast in the lies that say, no, you can find happiness here. You can find peace here. You can find fulfillment here. You can find joy here. Come on. but I think C.S. Lewis is right. When you look at the story of the whole Bible, this is what it said again and again. Outside of God, you don't find happiness. You don't find peace. You don't find joy. And this is where you know, Jesus says in John 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come. That they may have life and have it to the full. And this is what we're looking at as we get to the, uh, starting to get to the end of the book of revelation is that is what happens. Um, that evil is done away with. And those who are with Jesus will be with him forever. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.